Welcome to Literary Speaking with Crystal Lee Quibell. Literary Speaking is the author's guide to writing and publishing, sharing tips and tricks for aspiring authors. Crystal Lee's expert guests will bring you the latest information on how to write and publish your book into being. Are you ready to tell your story? Here's your host. Welcome to Literary Speaking. I'm your host, Crystal Lee Quibel, and today we're speaking with Joanna Rakoff, author, award-winning author, actually, of A Fortunate Age and My Salinger Year. Joanna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Great. You worked for a prominent literary agency in the 90s, and they represented J.D. Salinger, which is the topic of your your second novel or memoir. And one of the jobs for you was to answer his fan mail with this sort of form letter, but sometimes, you know, you decided to answer them yourself. What do you think was the most memorable piece of fan mail you received? Oh God. I mean, there were so many, the letters came in from around the world. You know, um, it was shocking how far Salinger's reach was, you know, Japan, Germany, Sri Lanka, everywhere. And um, I was amazed just by the sort of scope of the letters and letters from people of all ages, you know, children, um, and then people in their 90s. It was just unbelievable how many people from so many different walks of life were affected by Salinger's work. Um, but the letter that I loved the most was one from pretty close. Um, as in, you know, I was in New York, and this was a letter from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, um, that I thought at the time was from a teenage boy. And it was written in the style of Holden Caulfield. So, you know, dear Jerry, you old (laughs) bastard. It was just so wonderful and moving um, in in that um, this, this boy just really kind of laid out his inner life for Salinger in this kind of tough, but, but sort of um, very um, way in which this tough way in which he also was making himself very vulnerable. And you can see how deeply he had been affected by the catcher in the rye. Um, and I just loved this letter. I, I feel like I felt like I was going to burst into tears every time I read it. I, I kept it and kept reading it and rereading it, trying to figure out how to respond to him. Oh, wow. Um, but it was just wonderful. It was like its own little short story in and of itself, this letter. <laughs> and did you save any of the other letters or just that one in particular? Um, well, that one I saved. I still have it to this day. In fact, it's sitting right here on my desk right now. Um, it, it's sort of like a little totem for me. Um, I saved a few others. Um, well, actually, what I sh- let me go back and explain. Dur- I worked at this agency for one calendar year. And during that year, um, I saved many letters. So there were many, many wonderful and just moving letters. Um, people really poured out their hearts to Salinger. They told him about the death of their you know, children and just these, you know, their war experiences and all sorts of things. And uh, there were certain letters that I, I felt I just couldn't throw them away. My boss had told me just throw away the fan letters after you've responded to them. But some of them I just couldn't bear to, because this is, you have to remember, this is before everything was digital. So um, people were writing long handwritten letters with mm-hmm. fountain pens, they were typing letters on typewriters, and you could see the kind of labor that had gone into these letters. And it was almost like a life's worth of thought had gone into some of these letters. So I kept a folder with all of them during that year. And some I brought home and read and reread. And then when I left the job, um, I took that folder and I brought it. I thought I was going to bring it home, but I ended up actually throwing it away. 
I don't know why. Maybe I just needed to be done with this job. It had affected me so deeply. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe I was ready to kind of just move on. But I I do actually really regret it. Well, and I mean, you write in the book uh, about how much these letters got to you. And perhaps that's the reason why, you know, Jerry couldn't handle them himself. You know, he got to the point where he said he didn't want to see any of his fan mail. And so, you know, these people are really pouring their hearts out to you. And when you can't answer them in a way that you really want to, it must be extremely frustrating. Yes, exactly. And I mean, that's partly why Salinger could no longer handle his fan mail. Because for years, you know, and first of all, I just want to say, the volume of fan mail was enormous, you know, Mm -hmm. hundreds of letters a week. And earlier, you know, on in his life, in the 60s, 50s and 60s, he was getting more than that. He was getting big bags of mail every week. And he tried to respond to all of his fan letters himself. And he engaged in these wonderful correspondences with some of his fans. But it just became too much for him. And he also started receiving kind of crazy letters. Um, There is a whole component to his work that somehow appeals to homicidal maniacs, as as you probably know. Um, (laughs) So he was getting these crazy letters threatening his family, and it just was getting to be too much for him. It it seemed to sort of draw from the same place that writing did. Um, And that's sort of what happened to me in a way. As the year went on, I realized, oh, this is why you shouldn't respond personally to these people because, you know, not these people, like there's something wrong with them, but no matter what, you would get a letter back and it just became just so overwhelming. Um, So I completely understood. I went into it thinking, God, you know, why doesn't he respond to these people? This is horrible of him. And then by the end of the job, I thought, oh, of course he can't respond to them because how could he ever do anything else? How would he have any emotional resources left for his family? Absolutely. He responded to every fan. Yeah. So what really made you decide to write this book, My Salinger Year? Well, you know, it's a funny thing. I sort of never decided to write it. It was kind of decided for me. It's a very long story that I will condense for you. Basically, I left this job um, at the end of 1996, 1997, pretty much. And um, I went on to um, work at another agency. But while I was working at that agency, I went to grad school for writing um, and started writing for magazines. And at a certain point, I had had a meeting at a magazine and um, was pitching all of these, you know, carefully researched stories. um, And, you know, the the editors listened to me and asked me questions. And then at the end of the meeting, without really thinking about it, I said, or also I could write, you know, a personal essay about answering J.D. Salinger's fan mail. And they they immediately said, (laughs) that's the story we want you to write. Write that story. You know, forget (laughs) all these stories that you did all this research on and already, because I was a reporter that you did all this reporting on. So I wrote this piece. And it was supposed to be 800 words. It ended up being 8,000 words. This was not that long after I left the agency. It was maybe 2002 that I did this. And it got a lot of attention that it was surprising to me. You know, I was working on a novel and writing for magazines, but I was, you know, somewhat unknown. And suddenly I was being called by reporters, you know, being interviewed, whereas previously I had been the reporter interviewing people. And I was like, what's going on? <laughs> so at, at that time, I was contacted by editors and agents saying, do you want to turn this into a book? Many of them, actually. Um, as it happened, I already had an agent. Um, so I, you know, and I talked about this with her. Should I turn this into a book? And she said, no, finish your novel. 
if you write this book, you'll be known as the Salinger girl. And you don't want to be known for that. You want to be known as a novelist. And, you know, you're writing this, this great novel that's going to sort of have an impact on, on the world or whatever. So, yeah. um, so I finished my novel. The novel came out. Um, and pretty soon afterwards, Salinger died. And I found myself devastated. I stayed awake the night he died. Um, you know, I was crying. I reread a couple of his. I was so affected by it in ways that I really didn't understand. And um, the next day, I was contacted by various magazines because I was a little bit known as the Salinger girl, mm-hmm. um, you know, for this essay I'd written saying, do you want to write a piece on Salinger? So I did. And um, that piece became um, a documentary for the BBC about answering fan mail, a full-length documentary that I worked on for almost a year. And before it even aired, um, I started getting contacted by editors, sorry, saying, do you want to turn this into a book? And at first I just said no. And then finally, in short, I was convinced to do it. And I still, even as I signed the contract, I thought, this is a bad idea. I don't want to do this. I'm, I don't, I didn't like memoir. I didn't want to write a memoir. I didn't want to be known as the Salinger girl. I just was like, this is, I don't have an, I don't know that I have enough to say about this. And the truth is that I was resistant to it in part because that th- there are people who think of their youth as kind of their glory days, you know, that the sort of, mm-hmm. they wish that they could go back to being 22, 25, and they kind of bemoan, you know, their gray hair and their wrinkles or what have you. And I am the opposite. You know, I felt like I was such an idiot when I was very young and I had done these very <laughs> foolish things. Um, you know, during this period when I worked at this agency, I had for some reason abandoned um, someone I was deeply in love with and hurt him terribly and, you know, also horrified my family who thought I was going to marry this person. And, you know, I just had done all these stupid, stupid things. And I didn't understand why. I didn't. I was a very dumb kid. And I think I didn't want to revisit all this. Um, and so the lesson for me is that sometimes the thing that you're resisting, the story that you're resisting telling, that you're afraid to tell, is the story that you have to tell. You know, and so... In the end, um, I loved writing this book. It was incredibly difficult, um, but I loved I loved every minute of it, um, even the most difficult ones where I sat at my desk sobbing. Um, it's, but, but all of this is also to say that in a way, I would have, if I had not been pressured to write this book, I would have never written it. Wow. Well, everyone, you're listening to Literary Speaking with Krista Lee Quibel, and today we're talking with Joanna Rakoff, author of A Fortunate Age and My Salinger Year. When we come back, we'll discuss the benefits of working in a literary agency and how it benefited her as an aspiring writer. At the end of the show, we'll share how you can win a free copy of My Salinger Year. Tweet with us on Twitter at WriterCrystal with the hashtag memoir. We'll be right back. Your story is begging to be told, but do you know where to start? Crystal Lee Quibell is dedicated to helping you achieve your book publishing dreams. Go to crystalleequibell.com. That's crystalleequibell, Q-U-I-B-E-L-L.com, and sign up for Crystal Lee's newsletter today. Welcome back to Literary Speaking. I'm your host, Crystal Lee Quibel, and we're continuing our conversation today with award-winning author Joanna Rakoff of A Fortunate Age and My Salinger Year. Joanna, before the break, we were talking a little bit about, you know, how you didn't want to write this book. It was kind of the story you most resisted, and you you kind of said, 
the story that we most resist is the story we need to write. And I think that's so true. I felt like when I was reading this book, it was a really interesting look at not just J.D. Salinger's fans and and him himself as he interacted with you, but also um, just how you were navigating your life, you know, working with an icon of sorts. And I was just curious, what did you find the most interesting experience you encountered working at the agency? Oh, God. I mean, so many. I mean, on the most basic level, I I had been um, a kid who really kind of lived my life through books. Um, I read, you know, maybe a book a day as a child. I read and reread certain books um, over and over and over again until I'd almost memorized them. Um, I, you know, I had real experiences, you know, I had friends, I traveled, I did things, but I saw my life through the lens really of fiction. Um, and so, but that said, you know, I came from, I grew up in a suburb. My parents were kind of normal middle-class people. My dad was a dentist. My mother was a housewife. Um, they read a lot, you know, and my father was from a very intellectual family, um, but we were not necessarily part, even though we lived right by New York and both my parents were New Yorkers, we weren't part of the kind of, you know, New York intelligentsia art world sort of um, scene in the way that many of my college friends were, for instance. Um, so I didn't really know anything about how the publishing industry worked. I had I, When I was um, sent to interview for this job, I didn't even know what a literary agent was. I truly didn't. I didn't know how publishing houses worked. So on just the most basic level, it was fascinating for me to have um, the sort of world of literature and publishing be demystified for me. And this was both positive and negative. It was positive in that it made me much less afraid of pursuing a life as a writer. So I had wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know how, and I was afraid. Everyone in my family sort of did things that they went to school for. They got PhDs and became professors or they got MDs and became doctors. <laughs> and with, as a writer, you can get an MFA, but it's, it's not quite the same. It, that's not, it, there's no sort of very obvious path to becoming a writer. And so working at the agency kind of demystified all that and made me see that this could be a real life for me, that I could do this. I met lots of writers or talked to them on the phone, you know, and I just sort of understood that, even though there wasn't the obvious path um, in the way that there is, you know, when you become a medical doctor, there was a certain path, a rough path that I could follow. Um, There was also the slightly negative sort of part of it. Not that I don't want to dwell in it. It wasn't that negative, but it just was simply that I hadn't thought about the fact. I truly hadn't thought about the kind of business side of publishing at all um, and the ways in which there was kind of a bottom line to everything, you know, Um, and that was Mm -hmm. interesting. Um, and kind of, again, like a kind of demystification that, uh, that, that in some ways was actually reassuring because I, you think, okay, so I was, I was a reader for several agents and the bottom line was really, can I sell this? However, what made something saleable was simply that it was good, you know, and mm-hmm. agents didn't turn things down because they thought, well, this is great, but I can't sell it they turn things down because they thought this just isn't good enough. You know, that it's not going to get good enough. I mm-hmm. can't make it good enough or it's just not my taste. Maybe it'll be someone else and they'll be able to sell it, but I don't love it enough 
to devote all this energy to selling it. So it was interesting. I hadn't thought about the fact that agents and, in a way, publishers are business people. That's really interesting because, I mean, I know we've we've had some other people on the show and we've talked about, you know, platform building. And, and now a lot of it is, you know, you could write anything. If you have a big enough platform, it, it will sell. But it still goes back to good writing is good writing is good writing. Yeah, and I don't agree with that. I, I'm like, I don't, I'm not a, in any way a mm-hmm. person, but I don't really think if you have a big enough platform, anything will sell, yeah. except like in the most extreme level. Like if you're yes. like, you know, whatever that person is from like Jersey Shore. Like if you're Taylor Swift, yes. sure, and yes. you write a book of like, you know, religious poetry, sure, people will buy it. But yeah. like beyond that, I don't, I don't feel like if, you know, you're like, blog about walking your dog it, it's like today I picked up lots of poop like I don't know yeah. that people are going to buy that exactly you know, but also yeah and then there's also just a difference between like being a real writer like if you are really and truly a writer um and I, I don't here again I don't mean to sound really cranky though maybe I am um but if you're if you're really if you're really a writer then you're writing for the pure pleasure of being alone with your characters, mm-hmm. you know, sitting, you have to sort of really enjoy that. Like that is what writing is about. It's not about building a platform. It's not about how many followers you have on Twitter. Yeah. It's not about selling your book. So mm-hmm. you need to be sitting there at your desk and that has to be where you want to be and what you want to be doing and taking walks or, you know, going to the playground with your child and those characters are still in your head and you're still thinking about your sentences and what untangling whatever knot in the plot, you know, had you stuck earlier in the day, you really need to be inhabited by your work. Like if you're thinking about this kind of practical logistical stuff and that's your end goal, you know, to build a platform and sell a book, then you're not really a writer, you know? Well, yeah. And it really takes away from, the experience being a writer, you know, there's nothing better than sitting down and and crafting this story and you're excited about it and you get on a roll. And I think a lot of uh, aspiring authors have been discouraged, you know, being told, you know, it's all about the platform. It's all about this. And I'm like, but it's still about the writing. You know, there's, there's people that are beautiful writers that had no platform and became extremely successful. And it was just the icing on the cake because they wanted to share their story. Yeah, yeah. What do you think were the benefits to working in the agency as an aspiring writer and poet? Um, well, I think the the big benefit was the one I just described that um, that it sort of demystified how things get published, you know. And I, I stopped having any you know concern about um, about how to get how how one gets published because I, I sort of fully understood the process. It, it allowed me to not in any way think about it in a way, you know, I, I suppose there's a way in which this is a, a really like cheesy analogy, but you know, there's this whole idea that like, if you're super wealthy, you don't have to think about money. So it's kind of like that. Like I had this wealth of knowledge about how publishing worked, both magazine publishing and book publishing. And it really helped me to kind of forget about that and not have any anxiety about it and just think about, you know, just focus on actual writing and work. Um, and it also exposed me to writers that I wouldn't necessarily have read. Um, I was an English major 
in college and I had just finished, um, I, I had actually dropped out of a doctoral program. I had just finished my master's um, in English. And so I was much more well-versed in, you know, 19th century literature. I had read a bunch of, of contemporary literature, certainly, but um, when you work in publishing, you suddenly are kind of thrust into the world of contemporary fiction and nonfiction, you know, suddenly I understood like who were the New Yorker staff writers. And I, I just read um, so many different writers that I would have never even picked up if I hadn't worked there, which made me think about my own work. You know, it was sort of an education mm-hmm. in contemporary literature. Because you can read 19th century literature and love it and be influenced by it, but you're not going to yeah. write a book that, you know, reads exactly like Jane Eyre, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly. So for you working there, what was sort of the best advice you ever received during your time there or the best writing advice you've ever received? Well, okay, so from the agency, I suppose that um, you know, I spoke on the phone with, with Salinger pretty regularly. And he, um, I had been told that he was sort of scary and cranky and cr- like me, cranky and curmudgeonly. Um, <laughs> and instead what I found was that he was, I was told, you know, don't waste his time. Don't keep him on the phone. But what happened was that he would call and he would want to chat with me. You know, and I don't even, at first, I don't think it was anything personal at all. He just, I think he spent a lot of time alone and mm-hmm. it was like his one phone call a week. And he was happy to talk to another person. Um, and so he started asking me questions about my life. And through um, a sort of offhand comment I made he, uh, about um, a particular publisher, he had asked me a question I answered and he said, oh, do you read a lot of poetry? And I said, I do. And he said, do you write poetry? And I said, I do. And so every time he called after that, you know, he would say, How is, how's the writing going? Are you writing, still writing poems? You know, and I would say yes. And um, at one point I answered the phone. I was holding the reception, working the reception desk because the receptionist was at lunch or out for the day or something. And so I answered the phone for the whole agency. And um he, remember, this is the 90s, so it's before there was, like, a, a computerized voice yes. answering the phone. There was an actual person there, and she would have to go to the bathroom, and you would have to cover for her. So mm-hmm. um, he said, you know, why do they have you answering the phones? You know, you're not a secretary, and, um, you know, you're a writer. You're not a secretary. So, first of all, that was really wonderful advice. Just I had never published anything other than in my, you know, high school and college literary magazines. You know, I wasn't like a writer. I wasn't earning a living as a writer. But to have, um, he was essentially saying to me, think of yourself as a writer, first and foremost. You're not a secretary. Um, And that was very, very helpful to hear. Um, The other thing that he said to me was that I had to get up in the morning and write before going to work. And mm-hmm. this idea had never occurred to me. So I was, you know, 23 and then 24 years old. And as it happens, I've always been a morning person. I'm not a night person. I can't really work after dark. Um, I get very tired around 4 o'clock and then I'm just done for the day. But when you're young, you think that it's cool to stay up late and go out yeah. at night. And it never came <laughs> to me. Yet, like many people, it just wasn't my thing. And so he said this to me and it was like a revelation that you need to – that I needed to write before going to work during the day when my mind was fresh. And so I started doing that and I, it was, it just changed my life. So, I mean, both these books, my Salinger year and a fortunate date, I wrote them both 
you know, I, mostly after having children and um, mm-hmm. I would wake up very early in the morning, um, especially in my calendar year. I'd wake up at 4.30 in the morning and I would write just for an hour or two before my kids woke up and I would get so much done, but it would also kind of lay my path for the day because then the kids would get up. I would have to get them ready for school and make a lunch yes. and do all this crazy stuff, get them out the door. I lived in New York and I had to take them all the way to school on the bus. It was really stressful. Finally, I'd get to my office and I'd be like a maniac. But because I had done that work early in the morning, I knew what my path was for the day, like what chapter I had to finish, et cetera. And, you know, it really worked. So the point is, like, the Salinger was the one who suggested this to me. And I probably would have figured it out on my own, but it might, it might have taken me 10 years. And instead, <laughs> I just had him. I had to tell me to do it. And I followed what he said. Well, that's fantastic advice. I think especially for mothers that want to write, you know, we have to kind of sneak in our time wherever we can to get to get our words out into the world. Joanna, I just want to thank you so much for being here, for sharing this and for writing these beautiful books. They've certainly, you know, touched my heart and I'm just so grateful that you were able to be here today and offer your advice and wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, everyone, Joanna Rakoff can be found at joannarakoff.com. You can win a free copy of My Salinger Year by signing up for my newsletter, visiting crystalleequibel.com to sign up. It's crystalleequibel.com to sign up. Join us next time on Literary Speaking for more tips and tricks on how to get your work published. Keep the conversation going on Twitter at WriterCrystal. I'm your host, Crystal Lee. Thank you so much for tuning in and keep writing. Thank you for listening to Literary Speaking with your host, Crystal Lee Quibell. To start discovering how you can begin telling your story, go to crystalleequibell.com. That's crystalleequibell, Q-U-I-B-E-L-L.com. And sign up for Crystal Lee's newsletter. Join us again next week for more advice from your favorite authors and publishing professionals.